put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. On this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. It's not promoted in the university music education curriculum, even though it becomes an important part of many educators' workloads. And then people are thrown to the wolves. I'm not the type of musician who likes to perfect what I've already learned, but I'm the type of person who likes to explore what I don't know yet. I tell a lot of my students that I've discarded more approaches to trumpet playing than most people ever look into. Hey everybody, this is James Newcomb, and welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. And the trumpet itself is just a big, massive metal tubing. That doesn't have a story. But what makes the story of the trumpet is those who have played it throughout the years. And that's what this show is all about, is getting stories from real people who are in the trenches, who are making it happen, who are mm-hmm. literally making history with each breath inhaled and exhaled into the trumpet. Okay, I'm overstating it slightly, but you get the idea. That is the, that is the mission of this show, is to just share people's stories. And we are honored to have on the show today Mr. Brad Good. We can find him at bradgood, with an E, dot com. And he is the Associate Professor of Jazz Studies at the University of Colorado. He's just been around for a while, and we get to hear from him and get to know him a little bit in this show. So welcome, sir. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. Get us up to speed. What is going on right now in July of 2021 in Boulder, Colorado? Here in the United States, we're just getting to the point where people who have been vaccinated for COVID are able to get back to semi-normal activities and a semi-normal lifestyle. What that's meant for a lot of musicians who've been homebound for the last year and a half is very suddenly, uh, really before many of us were expecting it, a lot of performance opportunities have returned. Uh, and so, so for me, for the last month, I have mostly been on the road traveling and playing concerts and performances and things of different nature. And, and my phone started ringing much faster than I expected that to happen. Right. And I know that's right. true for a lot of us. So it's been fantastic, actually, um, being able to perform for people and, and, and see my friends my, and my, my fellow musicians in, in a lot of different places. People seem to be very excited right now to be able to hear live music. So it's, it's just a kind of an exciting time right now here. The pandemic was very difficult for many reasons. Um, but now that we're kind of getting to the other side of it, the blessings of it are kind of being revealed. There, there was a lot of hidden blessings, I think, that that are going to be revealed in the coming months and maybe the, <clears throat> the next couple of years. And one of which is people just realized how much they love live music. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people took it for granted, but they sure as heck appreciate it now more than they did before the pandemic started. 
So what was it like to get back on the stage? Like, Take us to the first night of your first live performance in over a year. Well, well, actually, that's not true. It wasn't. It wasn't my first live performance. Oh, okay. Because um, here in in the Denver area, Denver Boulder area, through last summer and most of the fall, many of us were doing outdoor concerts. Oh, okay, got it. And, got and it. I actually um, had a steady gig all through last summer playing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights at a public park in Denver, playing jazz concerts. And we would have three or 400 people out there every night, socially distanced, you know, on their blankets or their lawn chairs. Um, So we had found a way to be safe and keep playing, although concert venues and and festivals and, and and clubs were closed. There was a kind of a, a grassroots um, movement of, of doing uh, front porch concerts and driveway concerts and park concerts. And when we fortunately had this situation and um, I'm again doing this, this same gig now when I'm able to, when I'm not traveling. Here the last several weeks, I've been traveling a lot. So it, it was great to be back indoors playing. It was great to be back with many of the musicians that I play with on a regular basis or that I did pre-COVID. And, and it was wonderful to, to see people in the audiences um, without fear and, and without um, trepidation, just being able to enjoy themselves and enjoy the music. And it feels, you know, it feels more exciting suddenly to be playing some of the same gigs I was playing before. And I realized how much I missed many of these situations. And so maybe it got a little bit monotonous, but then some time away, you got back to it. And I don't know if it got monotonous, right. but 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 when you don't have it, you yeah. you, you sure realize how much you miss it. You yes. Know? So maybe not monotonous, but maybe a bit mundane. And then yeah. you got back into it, and it was just it was just fresh. And- yeah, and, and I think dur- during COVID, I had a lot of time to think and practice. And, and of course, you know, I was teaching the whole time, but, but um, I, I kept myself in shape and kept myself in practice. And I actually produced 300 videos in which I did all the arranging and played all the instruments. Wow. And so I was doing one every day. I started last summer and I kept going through the school year um, but I would get up early and, and do some arranging in the morning. And then um, in the evenings, I would I would do these overdubs and these tracks. And it's a little app in the phone where you, you could just easily mm-hmm. layer things and overdub tracks. And I, I did every kind of music I could think of. Mm-hmm. I, I found that that was a thing that enabled me to practice in a different way. I kind of Early on, I kind of got tired of playing with my Jamie Abersold records and, and wondered if there was something I could do that would be more fun and more interesting since I had to just play by myself most of the time. Right. And, and since I'm a multi-instrumentalist, I, I started doing this and, and people were enjoying this. And I, I would do one a day and, and post it on Facebook. Well, of course, a lot of jazz, but I did big band charts and, and I did... Um, 
R&B and funk and classical music, the recreated famous trumpet solos of the past. And I wrote um, orchestral reharmonizations for trumpet etudes. Wow. I, I did uh, Charlier as, as an abstract kind of funk thing. Yeah. I did um, uh, Arben characteristic number six as a jazz waltz because i would just keep thinking what haven't i done yet what type of thing have i not done and and then of course i i I was able to um get friends to collaborate because if they would purchase the same app or or even just download the free version since i had the paid version is that the acapella app acapella then i could have them collaborate so i did some things with with other musicians you know and and those got interesting. I, I did a thing with a, a drummer here in Denver where he said, okay, I'm going to write a chart and I'll play the chart and then you fill it in. He, what The chart that he wrote was just rhythms, mm-hmm. just hits and different tempos and things. And he sent me this drum chart and then I composed the melodies and harmonies to go with his drum chart. I did it with electric bass and six trumpets. It got very abstract. Yeah, if you if you weren't describing what you were doing during the pandemic, I would say this this man has way too much time on his hands. This man needs to get a job. But I mean, you were basically passing the time. I got into it. I was having a lot of fun, and and like I said, it was very good practice. I think that my playing changed quite a bit during this year. So. so now that I'm back to playing with other people, I, I feel that, you know, I'm I'm playing differently and, and got something came out of a rut a little bit. So it changed your playing for the better. I, I hope so. I mean, you'd have to ask other people what they think. But no, I, I'm definitely feeling like I've grown, particularly in my improvising. Well, yeah. you're no spring chicken. I mean, I'm looking at you on the well, Zoom video thanks for right that. now. <laughs> but I mean, you weren't born yesterday mm-hmm. or nor the day before yesterday. No. So you've been around the block a couple of times, but I love your perspective and your attitude of always wanting to get better. Yeah, thank you. How do you maintain that? I mean, what what is what keeps music and trumpet or playing the bass? What keeps it fresh for you? What is really I mean, I like all aspects of music, but I think for me the the part of it that is interesting and exciting is the unknown part. I'm not the type of musician who likes to perfect what I've already learned, but I'm the type of person who likes to explore what I don't know yet or what I can't do yet or what I haven't done yet. I think just just having that approach to music inspires me to want to change. One of my teachers used to say that learning is change. To keep learning, you have to keep trying something different. And and I think this has been my approach to music, to the kind of experiences I've had in music. It's been my approach as an improviser, as as a jazz artist, or or an improvising musician. And it's been my approach as a trumpet player. For example, I've, I've never stopped taking trumpet lessons. There, there are different periods of time where I'll start regular lessons with somebody. The last time I think was five or six years ago where, where I was doing some, some online lessons uh, every few weeks for 
for a couple of years. But I've had wonderful teachers and, and some of them long term and some of them short term. I think we all teach ourselves how to play. We're, we're all autodidacts in, in a way. But I, I like to get information and, and to understand the thoughts and approaches of people who do it well or who teach it well. You know, I, I tell a lot of my students that I've discarded more approaches to trumpet playing than most people ever look into. While you're studying with someone, it's a good idea to subscribe to what they're saying and advising and give it give the teacher the benefit of the doubt that mm. the teacher is not guilty until proven innocent. You you automate when you go to a teacher, you automatically should put your trust in that person and do what they recommend so that you can benefit from their advice. But after you finish studying with that person, and it could be shortly after, or it could be years after, you may step back and, and sort, sort out, well, what of that style or what of that approach do I wish to keep as part of my own approach and, and which part is not useful for me? And so I think that um, I'm at an age now where I'm still sorting through all of that. I, I don't recommend against any particular approach without having experience with it myself. So, so sometimes I'll, I'll tell a student, you know, trust me on this. I tried that for about 25 years. It didn't work out. So, so I, I'm kind of coming from that place now where I, I do feel my trumpet playing improving consistently, but only because it's changing and, and I'm willing to allow it to change. And I'm willing to try something that I haven't tried before or consider something that I haven't considered before. Um, a man who has is not young anymore. You're not a spring chicken. We've established that. And so and we we're talking about your your approach to lifelong learning. But I want to get to the very beginning. Tell okay. us the story about your first time playing the instrument. What got you interested in it? What made you want to stick with it? When I was 3 or 4 years old, I would stand in front of the speakers of my parents' stereo system. Uh, I was apparently very taken by music. And if they would pull me away from the speaker or turn the speaker off, I would cry. So, so somebody said to my parents, you ought to get that kid music lessons. Now, now bear in mind that nobody ever in the history of my father's family or in the history of my mother's family had ever attempted to play an instrument. Wow. No, nobody had been in the band or orchestra or taken piano lessons, anything, as far as I have been able to research. So my father was, was uh, a basketball coach at a junior high school across the street from the apartment we lived in in Chicago. He heard there was a man coming to teach violin lessons uh, one day a week at his school. So he signed me up and he got me a half-size violin. 
And this man was, was an elderly Italian man who didn't speak English, Antonio Menegini. The lessons were in the boiler room of this ancient school in the basement in the dark. And um, Mr. Menegini wanted me not to wrap my thumb around the neck of the violin because that's a bad habit. So he would keep whacking my thumb with his bow and screaming at me to keep my thumb up. So this is like, you know, something out of a Charles Dickens novel. I didn't play with other, play music with other children. My parents didn't listen to classical music. So I didn't know what this was all about. This was just some kind of cruel form of torture. So I quit after, after a few years. I, was, I hated it. It was horrible music. Then I found a guitar in the garbage, a folk guitar, without anybody advising me or teaching me, I started figuring out how to play it. And I started playing along with songs on the radio. And I started playing along with um, records and I started buying records. And at this time, the records were soul records or, or rock and roll records. And the other kids in my neighborhood started asking me to play in uh, rock and roll garage bands with them when I was about 10 and so I was playing with the teenagers and I was starting to play lead guitar. A lot of the young people on my block were joining the school band in fifth grade. Um, and I asked my parents if I could join the school band. And my father told me, no, I don't want to rent you an instrument again because you'll just quit like you quit the violin. So while my friends joined the school band, I didn't. And then again, in sixth grade, I asked, can I, can I join the school band, be with my friends in the band? Sure looks like they're having fun over there playing music together. And they said, no, next year, seventh grade, I really begged. And my father said, um, all right, I'll, I'll rent you an instrument. But if you don't practice, you're going to have to quit the band and I'm going to stop renting the instrument. He, at this point, my father was working at a high school, and there was a man coming to the high school to give trumpet lessons. So he heard about that, so he got me a trumpet. This guy coming to give lessons was Byron Baxter, who had been a, a real touring lead trumpet player during the 1930s and 1940s in the swing era. And so when I was studying with him in the in the 1970s, he was in his 70s, but a great guy, a happy, inspiring, nice person, <laughs> encouraging person who got me excited about playing the trumpet and introduced me to Louis Armstrong's recordings and Harry James' recordings and, and all of these things. And I would just, you know, sit around at home listening to these recordings, just, you know, fascinated with this new world of sound I was discovering. And, um, you know, fr from that point, it just, you know, the snowball was rolling. You know, by the time I went to music camp at 14 and had Kat Anderson as my teacher, I think I knew I just wanted to be a professional musician. I think very young. A and by the time I was 15, I was out playing gigs with adults. 
we didn't have any jazz in our school or, you know, my, my parents didn't, didn't know jazz. My teachers didn't know jazz. I told my high school band director, I was listening to Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. And he said, well, that's wonderful, Bradley. What do they play? He never heard of them. Yeah. I was kind of on my own. I did find people who, who helped me and, and took me in and encouraged me and, Pretty soon I was spending my evenings, you know, with adults playing music. So that, that, that's kind of what happened. I, I can't imagine a, someone who's teaching music doesn't know one of the biggest musicians of the day. I mean, it's just like the blind leading the blind. Well, even, even to this day, when you get a music education degree in this mm-hmm. country, you often have no jazz as a part of your curriculum, you don't play in a jazz group unless you choose to do so extracurricularly. And you might not even have a jazz methods class mm. in most degree programs. And then you you get a job as a band director and they tell you, oh, well, you also have to teach the jazz band. That's a lot of where these teachers uh, start with jazz. There's no real foundation. It's not really um, uh, promoted very much in the uh, the school system. It's not promoted in the university music education curriculums. Really? Even though it becomes an important part of many educators' workloads. And then people are thrown to the wolves. Wow. Because I remember my high school days was in the 90s. Where did you go to high school? I was in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Okay. They have a pretty good art scene, but I just remember we, we, we would have a jazz band, but the the rehearsals would be at like six o'clock in the morning. How how can you possibly even have your lips ready to play at six or maybe it was seven o'clock, but it was it was early and it was clearly mm-hmm. it was an extracurricular thing. But but at least you had one. We did have one. That's more than a lot of people have. And he did his best. Steve Lyons was my band director in high school. Mm-hmm. And he did his he did his best. But that's interesting that such a and it's such an American, uniquely American form. You'd think that American schools would be chomping at the bit to teach this thing. It's well, we're we're stuck. You know, the band movement is a remnant of the Civil War. The band movement in America, or or was a social bands were social organizations um, through the late nineteenth century, and when the early fight for music education. In the schools happened, band was the model. And somehow here a hundred years later, we still think that band has to be the way to teach music. Like a standard concert band with clarinets yes. and saxophones. Yes. And, yeah. Teaching Sousa and You're not you're not bringing the students music through introducing them to something that might be more relatable to them, like hip hop or mm-hmm. Latin music or funk or jazz. You're saying no. You have to play in the band. I mean, and, and to the point where, I mean, even to, when I was a child in the in the 1970s, they wouldn't let people start on the saxophone. You had to play clarinet for several years before they'd give you a saxophone. That's just their mindset. Yeah, that you know, the, these things are still with us in one way or another. I remember when I was in the military band, we we did a. I was in a brass quintet in the in the army, and we I think we went on a little tour of some sort to some schools in Tennessee. And one of the schools that we played at, uh, the band director, in hindsight, was a real forward thinker. 
the vast majority of the students were African-American. They're not interested in Ewald. They're not interested in John Philip Sousa. But that's what we were playing. From our perspective, we were like bringing what we do to them. But the band director said, why don't you play something like Little Wayne? And at the time, it seemed to me to be just kind of ridiculous. I mean, a brass quintet playing hip hop. I mean, you just you don't do that. But I realize, well, why can't a brass quintet do something like that? Why can't we introduce electronics along with the tuba? And why can't we do that? But well, certainly you can. Of course, you can. You have to consider doing it. (laughs) Yes, we're limited in our thinking, and which which is why it doesn't occur to us because we think that this is the only way to do a brass quintet. Of course, you don't add electronics to it. Kind of like the drum corps uh, debate; they've introduced electronics to much controversy. You just have to change your way of thinking sometimes. Absolutely. So when you're teaching, um, I mean, what, we've, we've addressed this, this problem. For us, it's a problem. Yeah. And what are you doing to kind of address this when you're teaching your students? Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of interaction with people who are majoring in music education because the way our system is now set up is you can major in music education, you can major in music performance, or you can major in jazz performance, which is a separate degree track from classical performance. I, I have my hands full with trying not only to teach jazz to jazz aspiring jazz musicians, but trying to prepare them to be well-rounded musicians who might have a shot at a freelance career and styles outside of jazz. It's not part of my purview to be able to talk with the music ed majors and give them jazz training. So, so I can't directly affect this from where I'm sitting. Okay, so let's say that Brad Good becomes the Anthony Fauci of American music education. Like you are on that pedestal. Well, then I would do what, I, what I've been saying to you, which is in a predominantly African-American community, use African-American music forms as the curriculum. In a predominantly Latinx community, use Latin American music forms as the curriculum. You know, I think students should have experience with classical music, whether it's band or orchestra or choir, but making that the only thing that is a four-credit course offering and making everything else extracurricular sends the wrong message about music to kids. You know, spoken as somebody who has two classical music degrees. And I'm just thinking of the business training that I've received. You always want to be relatable. If you're not relatable, and it doesn't matter how good your product is, nobody even wants to let you let you in the door mm-hmm. to even hear your sales pitch. If you're mm-hmm. not relatable, if you're not likable, the issue that you're bringing up is these kids are are growing up. They're coming into an into adulthood, not really appreciating what it takes to be a fine musician and learning the disciplines and the virtues that you acquire learning an instrument or learning music because the school system, the, their, their product is not relatable to, mm-hmm. to their clients, so to speak. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I was intrigued by what you said about 
like you're 57 years old, you still take lessons, which I think mm-hmm. is fabulous because mm-hmm. that's something that I need to learn. When you're in college, for example, and you're taking lessons probably on a more regular basis than you are when you're an older fellow, how is your approach different? Like when you were 19 years old taking lessons from your teacher in college, mm-hmm. how is your mindset different? How receptive are you now versus when you were back then? In, in the experience that I had in college, I was a very, a very good jazz bassist, jazz trumpet player, and, and, a, and, a, and a very mediocre, at best, classical trumpet player uh, as a person coming out of high school. And I, and I really couldn't decide at that point whether I was a bassist primarily or a trumpet player. I, of course, love both of them. But I, I met a trumpet teacher at a summer workshop the summer before my senior year of high school, and he was so fantastic and so inspiring and such a great teacher that I gave up the idea of auditioning for all the high-powered jazz schools and went and followed him to a school that had no jazz and no music scholarships because I knew this was the person I wanted to learn to play the trumpet from. And he had made me excited about the trumpet. Back in those days, many of us, whether we were classical players or jazz players, chose a school based on who our trumpet teacher would be. And I think that now kids think in different ways. They think which schools are getting the most people jobs or or which school is in, in the area that I want to start my career in. Like, you know, if I go to school in New York, then I'll already be in New York where I want to play. Or, you know, there's a lot of things like this or, or you know, which school has the, the biggest reputation for their orchestral program or their jazz program. It's not about who's my teacher going to be. And I thought, well, you know, I'm already learning jazz on my own. I'm going to continue learning jazz on my own. At that point, I didn't really think, well, jazz isn't something you can study. And by the way, I never have studied jazz formally. Hmm. Um, I have never had a class or a lesson. I thought, I sure don't understand how this darn piece of brass works. (laughs) It's a giant mystery to me. And I need somebody to explain that to me. Well, I, I picked one of the greatest people in the world, Vince DiMartino. And I went to the University of Kentucky. But Vince, being a great teacher, and, and he, he tells people this about having me as a student all the time, he really didn't want to show me anything. Because he, he said that he didn't want to, he thought I was a very unique, individual, unusual thinker and player. And he didn't want to get in the way of that or impose his aesthetics on me. Now, years later, when I was having trouble with my playing, I went to Vince and said, now, Vince, you need to show me now. And, And, you know, but we've had this kind of relationship. And, and he's helped me out of many jams, um, you know, he's as my mentor over the years. But, you know, I think I could have been more inquisitive about the mechanics of the trumpet 
and asked more questions and wanted to know more when I was there. Because when I got out of school and, and things weren't going the way I wanted them to go, I became more inquisitive about it because I need, really had a desperate need for answers. And, and I, I looked everywhere and I kept looking everywhere. And, and I think that, that now I think a lot about the trumpet as an instrument to be wrestled to the ground. And that when I was a college student, I was just more of a free spirit experiencing music. And, and my teacher was saying, that's great, you know, keep going. You're doing great. And he wasn't really calling my attention to my deficiencies. They were there, you know, they, they've been there. Um, so um, I, I could have asked more questions as a student. And, and, and I love when I have students who have all the questions. I don't want to be the person just providing all, all the thoughts. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know what it is that they want and what they're trying to do. And then I use my experience to, as a sounding board for them to have some, some ideas that they can try, you know? Yeah. And, and I really encourage my students to come to lessons with questions. And, and I often, often start the lesson with, well, what are we talking about this week? Well, with my, with my younger students, if I have undergrads in the freshmen and sophomores, I'm also assigning them etudes in the, in the things in the traditional trumpet lesson way. But as they get older, I want to ask them, well, what is it you really want to talk about? What is it you really want to help with right now? I'm enjoying teaching this way. And I think my students are enjoying studying this way. At least they seem to get better. So that, that's what we really want. You know? it, it seems to me that doing it that way, you teach the students to become their own teachers. I think that's main, really the thing. Yeah. yeah. So like you're not, the, you're not the master and they're the grasshopper. Is there really a master of the trumpet? I mean, come on. Has yeah. anyone ever really mastered it? No, it's endless, of course. Right, right. And there's always, there's always more. You, get, you, you solve one thing and then there's, there's the next problem. You know, well, what about the problems this thing brings up? What, you know, you know, so, yeah, there's always something to work on. So when is the last time that you took lessons? It's been five or six years, but I was taking lessons with Dave Sheets, who, who is the, he, he's quite older, a bit older now. And I'm not even sure he's teaching now, Dave. Um, but he was the only person um, authorized and, and kind of given permission by Donald Reinhardt to teach Reinhardt's system. And, and he teaches it in the way that Reinhardt taught it, which is that after each lesson, you get a write-up, like a report, with recommendations and it's an evaluation. It's very analytical. Well, here's, here's what I noticed and here's the things you need to do. And here's, here's the exercises and here's how you play them. And it's, it's a very, it's instructions for mm -hmm. your practicing. And I made Trum, I have been interested in Donald Reinhardt's theories for many years 
and and many people have advised me to study them going back to when I was in my early 20s and I was playing with Red Rodney and he had been a Reinhardt student and advised me to to study Reinhardt um I'd met I'd worked with some some great lead players who were Reinhardt students and um and uh Clark Terry told me to read Reinhardt's book I mean so, so th- these ideas had had always been in my head but but you know I did some research as well who do I go to to really understand this? And 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 Dave was the man. And, and Dave himself had been a, a former big band trumpet player and, and a lead player for many years in Atlantic City when he was younger. And, and he sure helped me. Oh, my God, my playing changed in so many ways after I learned to understand these concepts um, but, you know, it was several years I was going to him for online lessons. And, and I really thought that was tremendous. Now, now there's a, a young man in Toronto who's a trombonist whose name is Paul Tarasoff. Paul is maybe the next Dave Sheets. He, he's a person who's devoted all of his time and interest into understanding the Reinhardt system. And I kind of go go to him for some some advice now. I myself am getting to the point where I understand it fairly well, and I can advise people on some mm-hmm. aspects of this. You know, it seems to me that as you grow older, you, st- you continue to make these breakthroughs, whatever they, the case may be, and, and it just keeps you motivated to keep doing it. Abs- absolutely. And when I was a younger person, I always thought it was very important to play with people who were more advanced than I was, whether that was being a trumpet player and and playing in trumpet sections with, with better trumpet players, or whether that was being an improviser and and playing on the stand with better improvisers. I've been a very fortunate person just in terms of the people who allowed me to play with them in that way all through my life. And I, and I'm still, trying to do that. So I'm still finding people who kick my butt Mm. and trying to be with them and play with them and putting myself in these situations that are challenging, force me to up my game. Yeah. Speaking of my high school years, I remember someone telling me, I I don't even remember who it was, but the advice was, there's always someone better than you. Doesn't matter what you do and how good you do it. There's always someone that does it better. And, and it's funny because some of the people who I think do things better than I do, they think I do them better than they do. And you realize, oh, well, we're all just trying to be the best me that we that we can be if we can help each other rather than, you know, being stingy with each other. That's really our best shot. Boy, here in Colorado, it, it's kind of crazy how many world-class jazz trumpet players have settled here in the last several years and and you know so we have a little little scene here with with um you know many um internationally known recording artists living here in denver and we all hang out and talk trumpet and help each other and give each other advice it's a very open friendly situation i send my students you know 
go take a lesson with Greg Gisbert, you know, go t- go take a lesson with Benny Bloom, go take a lesson with Ron Miles, you know, I'm not saying you need to do things my way. And these mm-hmm. other guys are teaching different mm-hmm. stuff. You know, it's the exact opposite. You know, these other guys are teaching different stuff. So you, you need to study with them too. You can hear some other stuff right. for sure. You know, lifelong learning, never stop you know, being a student. I, I think that's the thing. Yeah. Well, my guest is Brad Good. Uh, his last name is spelled with an E, so it's Brad Good with an E at the end. He is found online at bradgood.com. Just a very enjoyable interview, and I hope that you all listening in enjoyed it half as much as I did because it was very rewarding. So hopefully we have a round two coming up soon, but until then, Brad, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.